What's happening, people? I'm Richard Warwick. Welcome to What's Happening with me, Richard Warwick. I'm back for another episode of the podcast after a rather lengthy break. And uh, the reason I haven't been podcasting lately is because a lot of people are just brainwashed. And I can't really talk about what's happening at the moment while people are wearing masks outside and getting experimental vaccines and just blindly listening to a government that, for all my life at least, has just lied to us. So I'm going to stay away from the pandemic at the moment. And today I'm going to be talking about Britain's 9-11, the 7-7 bombings and MI5's Stepford 4 operation and how the 2005 London bombings turned every Muslim into a terror suspect. So for those of you who are in a different part of the world, may not be familiar, uh, the 7th of July 2005 London bombings, often referred to as 7-7, they were a series of four coordinated Islamist suicide attacks in London, England, that targeted commuters travelling on the city's public transport system during the morning rush hour. So 52 people died and over 700 people were injured. That's the official narrative that everyone was told and happily believed. Obviously, I, be- I do believe these people died, but the official narrative is that you know these four London, uh, these four Pakistani immigrants, or you know these four Muslim lads just decided to blow themselves up uh, for whatever kind of you know because they're crazy Muslims. That's the official narrative. So in 2011, a former police intelligence um, analyst went public with his views that the official story of July 7 bombings was a monstrous lie and the attacks were perpetrated by our own intelligence agencies with clear government complicity. Unsurprisingly, that caused his career to take a sudden downturn. He was sacked after 17 years for blowing the whistle on the whole operation. So here is the background laid out by that intelligence analyst named Tony Farrell. So, 7-7 bombings, he said one intriguing aspect of the 7-7 bombing report is the fact that the MI5 codename for the event is Stepford. The four bombers are referred to as the Stepford Four. So why is this the case? The MI5 codename is very revealing in that it suggests the operation was carefully coordinated and controlled one with four compliant and malleable patsies following direct orders. Now if MI5 has no idea who was behind the operation or whether there were any orders coming from a mastermind, why would they give the event codename Stepford? So let me give you some background anyway. Uh, The word was out that there was easy money to be made by young Muslim men taking part in an emergency preparedness operation. So Mohammed Sadiq Khan, better known by his Western nickname Sid, had been approached by his contact, probably a man named Haroon Rashid Aswat, who was in London at the time, about a big emergency preparedness operation that was looking for local Pakistani lads who might take part in the pretend suicide bombing as an enactment. So the call was somewhat unusual. Not just anyone was going to be asked. The people running this wanted young men who were conservative, who were like conservative-looking, cleanly dressed people, who probably had some form of higher education. So you know, university students. So these four students were going to run, and like a, a false flag event. 
you know, so that if something like that was to happen, people would know how to respond and, you know, it's like a simulation kind of event. So London-based consultancy company Visor Consultants, which has a history of holding such events, uh, the man called Sid, his wife Hazina Patel, had been experiencing complications in her second pregnancy and he wondered if she might be better off getting help through expensive private doctors. So he agreed to take part in it and to recruit other lads to take part in it too. Uh, did he smell a rat? That's the question because Khan asked only men of Pakistani descent who were single. His friend and younger psychic Shazad Tanweer, who had just graduated from university, agreed to do it. He just racked up a big bill on uh, a, rep- a repair bill on the car that he, he bought, a red Mercedes, and he could have used the money to pay that off. 18-year-old Hazib Hussein was a you know, relatively good guy who was waiting his waiting for his exam results. And he wanted to enter Leeds University that September. He could use the money for a car, you know, so he could travel to and from university. And the other one, Ajaz Fiaz, who was known for sometimes dyeing his hair blonde, you know, for partying. He also agreed. He was a bit flaky, but he seemed to fit the bill. So can't give their names as volunteers. Now, what could go wrong? Aswat was well connected with British security, and he had to be reliable. But he felt somewhat compromised by his and Tanweer's work with security people the previous year. Uh, No one was really more patriotic than Tanweer. He loved Great Britain and he wanted to help the government in any way he could. Uh, They allowed themselves to be taped in 2004, but he didn't feel good about it. He and Tanweer had been acting in good faith in getting other Muslims like Omar Qiyam to talk on tape. But he started to realise the security people were basically trying to find Muslims to set up for their war on terror. It had been da- it had become dangerous for Muslim lads at the time, even patriotic ones like him and Tanweer. He wondered whether the work they did for security services had made them safer or put them in even more danger. So tapes of the two had been made for security guys the year before. And in the tapes, it, it made them look like crazy terrorists, dressed up like half pirates and half Palestinians. They had like red um, kefirs wrapped around their heads, and they'd been talked into being photographed like that against their better judgment. So, of course, they had also gotten paid for it. We hoped those tapes, you know, would kind of disappear, and those tapes would be important after the bombings because they used the footage from those tapes to you know to suggest that they were radical young men when in reality they'd been set up and the security services paid them to do these things on tape what could anyone do to him anyway everybody knew him his reputation was such that he had to be untouchable he had been featured in the sunday times educational supplement for his excellent work in counseling children of immigrants he was known for fixing dangerous situations, including conflict resolution with troublesome teenagers. He'd even been able to help kids get off drugs. So kids knew he cared about their problems when he talked to them. He also knew important people and was a friend of a member of parliament. His mother-in-law knew the Queen and had special recognition for progressive work with Muslim women. If there was anyone in the Muslim community who had to be beyond any suspicion for any funny business, it had to be this man, you know. Still, it would be naive to think that there were no risks involved, and, you know, it must have chilled him. 
Um, why an emergency preparedness operation needed fake suicide bombers. The man I'm talking about, by the way, is Sadiq Khan, not the London Mayor, it's a different man. Uh, Khan got the word out that he and Hasina had separated, you know, his wife. He didn't want to harass if anything went wrong and he was being set up. So Fiaz, the partying guy who used to dye his hair, ended up cancelling out in the end. So Khan ca- uh, contacted a man called Jamal, or using his non-Muslim ma- uh, name, Jermaine. Now, Lindsay, a burly black bodybuilder who had been born in Jamaica, uh, took Fiaz's place. He wasn't of Pakistani origin, but he was Muslim. His wife, Samantha, was about to deliver their second child, so Lindsay was happy to get extra money. Obviously, they were going to get paid for this event. All of the guys volunteering new security contacts. It looked as if they might be fun while they were helping out and making an extra bit of money. So that's a little bit of background on... You know uh, why these four lads decided to take part in this exercise event and then I've got a little timeline I've drawn together here from a couple of different sources so we'll start off on Thursday July 7th 2005 it's a day that people still talk about in London England a meeting of the G8 had started in the Glen Eagles and London had just been named um, as the city for the next Summer Olympics which are in 2012 everything's all good so about 10 to 9 a.m. in the morning, Scotland Yard's office put a call through to their Mossad contacts at the Israeli embassy. Uh, Benjamin, Benjamin Netanyahu, you should all know who he is because at, at this present time, he's the Israeli prime minister. At that time, he was serving as Israeli's finance minister, was in London to address a conference near Liverpool station. So the word on the street is that Scotland Yard warned Israeli officials that explosions were about to happen and Netanyahu did not leave his room that morning. The commuters in London, they weren't as lucky. About five minutes later, explosions started to rip up through the London transport, subway, cars and buses. About 9am, ten minutes later, London Transport put out the word that it seemed to be a power surge problem. The gold team of London's uh, Met Police shut down all of the mobile phone systems for at least an hour in central London which they initially denied doing. At 10 to 10, an explosion ripped through a number 30 bus in Tavistock Square, near the office of the British Medical Association and other offices of various security operations. Featuring a giant ad for a terror film, the bus seemed to be the only one that had strayed off its normal route that day. The driver got uh, stuck his neck out to ask for directions, when the back of the upper deck exploded. So photographs of the bus show it with varying degrees of damage. Uh, You can see all of those photographs anywhere on the internet. Soon after bus number 30 explosion, the public was notified that as well as about... as well as explosions on the subway over the past 50 minutes, the entire London transport system would be shut down. There had been reports of explosions in three buses and at least six subway cars. The subway explosion seemed uh, to be on trains which could have been started at King's Cross Station, although that would not be clear. Given witness accounts with some travelling in opposite directions or even on different subway lines, in addition, the FBI's Vincent Canistrow would report the further discovery of two unexploded bombs as well as mechanical timing devices, so bombs on a timer that would go off at a certain time. 
At 11am, there were reports about police marksmen having killed uh, from one to four suicide bombers at Canary Wharf, uh, which is the media centre, you know, Canary Wharf. Everyone knows that big, iconic building. The story made it to a number of newspapers, including Toronto's Globe and Mail, the New Zealand Herald, and reported that Canary Wharf workers were told to remain away from the windows for six hours. So that was 11 o'clock. By noon, Police Commissioner Ian Blair noted that there had been about six explosions and people were asked to stay out of London. Police inexplicably moved Lindsay's parked car with a valid parking ticket on it from Luton's commuter parking lot to a restricted parking lot at Leighton Buzzard. Around that time, Sid Khan's wife, Hazina Patel, called the, called the police to uh, say that her husband was missing and she had lost the baby and she really wanted to speak to him. So some hours later, Hasib Hussein's mother joined 115,000 frantic hotline callers to report Hasib missing. There were people all over London calling, calling the missing persons hotline because obviously all of those bombs went off and things like that and you know a lot of people were stuck from commuting, they couldn't get home, so there were a lot of people missing that day. Later that afternoon, the head of security-related uh, visor consultants, Peter Power, spoke on radio and TV. Incredibly, his company had been commissioned to carry out an emergency preparedness operation for simultaneous bombings at 9am at the very stations that were affected by the blasts. So, Edgware, Aldgate and Piccadilly. And people have noted that the probability of bombs going off on a day that this company have an operation, you know, simulating bombs going off, being a coincidence, are close to zero, as close to zero as possible, you know. So, um, power it turned out, I practiced making this announcement. He had been part of a mock exercise in April 2004 with the same bombing scenario of three subways and a bus that had been featured on a BBC Panorama programme. He'd also taken part in a joint US-UK-London emergency preparedness operations as recently as two months before. Power was a veteran of the British Intelligence Agency until his founding of Visor Consultations in 1995. So that's a quick timeline of the events of that day. Uh, straight away, as soon as it got reported, everyone knew that it was Al-Qaeda, right? So, by the end of the day, the government claimed that Islamic extremists were responsible for four of the explosions in London that morning. So, Prime Minister at the time, Tony Blair, he was incensed at the suggestion by the head of opposition that an independent investigation might be appropriate. Since everybody knew that Muslims had done it, it would have been an insult to the security services as well as a waste of time and money. Besides, one month before the Inquiries Act became law, giving the Prime Minister full control of all inquiries, a truly independent inquiry would not be possible. The London explosions, which Scotland Yard claimed had been no advance notice of, was claimed to have killed 52 commuters and injured 700. 300 of those 700 were seriously injured. The death toll from the bus was initially declared to be two, but mysteriously increased to 13 or 14. Ian Blair called it a complicated situation, without further elaboration. It took several hours for some of the injured to receive help and treatment. A possible factor in the death toll would be that 
investigated in the 2000 Intel Hallett inquest, I'm sorry I can't talk today, the government had only not only rejected any inquiry, they were also busy destroying evidence. So the bombed vehicles were immediately taken um, off and disposed of, apparently sent out of Britain to be sold as scrap, without any photographs or documentation of the damage. There were no autopsies of the dead and no records collected of the survivors' injuries for forensic purposes. Now, where have we heard that before? Um, any of you who have looked into 9-11, all of the scrap metal from 9-11 was immediately taken away and shipped to China. And so nobody could you know, test it for thermite or anything like that. And they've done the same with this bus here. The day after the explosions, which was Friday, July the 8th, Scotland Yard sent off its Operation Crevice files on Omar Kiam and his group, which included information on Khan and Tan Weir to the RCMP in Canada for the Kawaja trial. Not long after that, police removed an ele electronic monitoring device from Khan's car. Hasib Hussein's exam results arrived. He had scored high marks in four out of five of his exams, and he definitely would have got into university. I'm just going to apologise for my phone beeping then. I thought I put it on silent. There was a big police operation in Aylesbury, Buckinghamshire, where Lindsay lived. Chief Superintendent Simon Chesterman, the most senior police officer in Buckingham, arrived at his office in Aylesbury Police Station on Friday, July the 8th, to be confronted by Scotland Yard's counter-terrorism unit. Detectives believed that Lindsay, uh, the King's Cross bomber, who killed 26 people, was in fact a fifth bomber, and that one was still alive and posed an immediate threat to public safety. Officers had discovered the car of Jermaine Lindsay, who lived in Northern Road, abandoned at Luton train station where he travelled to London with the three other bombers. What followed, said Chief Superintendent Chestman, was the biggest operation he, he had ever witnessed in 22 years in the police force. So, Christophe Chaboud, a French anti-terrorism expert, was called in to help with the investigation and he quickly noted the expertise of the London bombs had reported the bomb maker was sophisticated and the explosives were very high grade and specifically not homemade so these bombs were not homemade bombs that evaluation was shared by other uh, explosive experts and confirmed with the identification of an unusual variant of the military plastic explosive C4 at all four bomb sites so the remains of timing devices were also found in the subway blast sites which meant that no one had to die in all of those explosions so basically the bombs were very sophisticated they were c4 they had timing devices on them so if these four boys wanted to kill as many people as possible they wouldn't have killed themselves no if they were, if they were just planning on blowing themselves up why would they have put timing devices on all four bombs and remember i mentioned that they said that there was a fifth bomber. Well, I'll get into that in a bit. I don't know if you can remember John Charles de Menezes, I think his name was. Uh, he was a Brazilian man who was in Britain illegally after his visa had run out. So he ran away from the police, and the police actually shot and killed him in London. Um, it was a mistaken identity. They thought that he was one of these bombers. But I'll get into that in a little bit. So the next thing the police had to do 
on Monday, July the 11th, they had to identify the, you know, the four bombers, the accused. So 800 detectives gathered to watch 5,000 CCTV tapes to see if they could spot something suspicious. So people walking in with large bags and walking out, perhaps at another station without the bags. The exercise looked uh, like Mission Impossible and was expected to take, you know, a good couple of weeks. That night, however, they claimed they were really lucky and they spotted four to five men of Asian descent, four with identical backpacks, similar to those used by the British military, at Luton Station on their way to King's Cross, which they took to be the original point of the subway bombings. The police claimed that they had a lucky break with Hussein's mothers calling them, which put a name to one of the four men showed in the footage, which they refused to show to the public. Police claimed that then they found the identity cards of three of the four men, which they could connect to the various blasts, a Mohammed Sadiq Khan at Edgware, Shazad Tanrier at Allgate, Hazib Hussein on the bus. Police claimed that all were clean skins or unknown to the police. Scotland Yard was embarrassed by Nicolas Sarkozy, then the French Minister of Interior, um, whatever that means, publicly reminded them that Khan and Tanweer were known to the police and to the intelligence services because they had taken part in Operation Crevice. After the announcement, the police noted that the Khan's body was not to be found at Edgware Road site where he was supposed to have died. So that the BBC in 2005 were claiming that only Khan's ID, which was uh, subsequently found on the bus, and reported also at Allgate, Tamria's ID was not only found at Allgate but also on the bus too, which exploded almost an hour after he was supposed to have died. So, well, this is the same as 9-11 again, where they're like, oh, we found the passports of these people who blew themselves up. So you're telling me they blew themselves up on a plane, they crashed into a building, all that fire, that explosion, but the passport survived. Same with on this, you know, they've blown themselves up on a bus, but their ID cards, or what's that, like a driving license or a passport, have survived? What are they made out of? You know, a little bit of plastic. Bomb goes off, that ain't surviving, it's going to melt. So the Piccadilly site's fourth bomber. At first, the identity of the fourth man was a mystery. One paper named Ejaz Fiaz as the fourth bomber, but noted that the name had not been confirmed. Police claimed that the body of the fourth suicide bomber had been so shredded at the Piccadilly blast that his identity required DNA analysis. So a DNA sample was reportedly taken from the parking stub from the car the police had towed on July the 7th, which was Lindsay's car. The next morning, which was July 13th, The Independent published a stunning article that challenged the previous day's DNA claim. It said the suicide plot hatched in Yorkshire quoted Deputy Assistant Commissioner Peter Clark, head of Scotland Yard's anti-terrorist branch. So the independent article said the investigation is moving at great speed. They're trying to establish the movements of the subjects in the run-up to the last week's attacks and specifically to establish whether they all died in the explosions. The article noted the four young British men, all thought to be of Pakistani origin, are believed to have blown themselves up with rucksack bombs. The body of the fourth bomber is thought to be among the remains in the wreckage of the Piccadilly line. So on July the 12th, police didn't appear to have the body to do the DNA testing on. People were wondering why it was taking the police so long to identify the bodies of the victims. 
while the 190 victims of the Madrid bombings have been identified in 24 hours. It would take almost another week, so until July the 19th, for police to identify the 52 victims of the London bombings. Was it because British police couldn't find bodies they were looking for? So, on Tuesday the 12th of July, Lindsay's wife Samantha Lethwaite had called the police to call her husband missing. Police searched their home immediately. The next day on July 14th, which is two days after, sorry, police announced that they had found Lindsay's ID and he was the fourth bomber. Lethwaite was incredulous and refused to believe the accusation without DNA proof. So the police identification was stunning because they'd been claiming that all the subjects looked Pakistani. There was no way anyone could mistake the big black uh, man, Lindsay, for an Asian. And just remember that the police said that they have four Asians walking from Luton onto the onto the train to London. Well, I'm not being funny, but you know this man was a big man. You know he's like six foot two, and he's black. You know he's from he's from like the Caribbean. After Lindsay's identification was confirmed, police provided Lethwaite with protection, presumably monitoring those who tried to contact her. They also arrested Naveed Fiaz, who was Ijaz's brother. He was held for a week before being released with no charges. The fallout from homegrown suicide bombers. So, the British public was incensed at the news that British-born citizens could have turned on them. One Muslim man was kicked to death soon after the announcement. The public abuse of like Pakistani British people was uh, so ugly that within two months, two thirds of them considered apparently considered leaving the UK. Now, I don't know. I don't know how much of that I believe. To be honest, I think that the papers were just throwing that out there because you think like at the time you had all the grooming gangs and everything like that going on, and I think that they wanted to use this attack so they could create a, th- a further divide between the Muslim population in Britain and you know, the white British population. Because the simple fact is that the reason that the Rochdale and all the grooming gangs like that got away with it is the police were too scared to be called racist. That's the official narrative. So they didn't look into it. Now, every Muslim lad I've met, they hate rapists and paedophiles as much as anyone does. You know, it's not really a part of their culture. I know that obviously Muhammad traded slaves and he had like a six year old wife and things like that. But most of the Muslim people I know and I have met, they've never even read those scriptures, do you know what I mean? Tony Blair at the time he was riding high and the headlines up to July the seventh described the political humiliation of Blair that that he faced from the anti terror and anti civil liberties legislation. So civil libertarians had been amassing a public war chest of one million pounds you know, in Sterling to fight his new legislation. Suddenly he found the vast majority of the public was behind him. Buoyed by the polls, he made vicious comments about Islam and described further legislation he would like to do. So he was criminalising speech describing why those under occupation might want to kill themselves, criminalising the word martyr, criminalising extremism, which seemed to mean only anti-Israeli extremism. The game has changed, Blair declared, and he started to produce legislation that would jettison Britain's obligations under the international humanitarian law. So basically, what Blair was doing at the time was he was criminalising hate speech against, um, you know, this sector, you know, like... um, Muslims, for example, 
but you could be as anti-Semitic as you like and say anything about Israel Jews. So basically what he was trying to do here was cause a divide between the Muslim population and the non-Muslim population. He was trying to make out that all white people hate Muslims and all Muslims hate white people and that Muslims randomly explode on buses, you know, even though they pay for parking on their cars and, you know, the, uh, the boys from Luton bought return tickets, you know, they thought they were coming home, they thought they were just popping down for some kind of operation and then going home. So, the fast identification of the accused seemed to be confirmed by the police identification of two cars connected to the men. So one in Luton car park reportedly with homemade explosives in the trunk, the other parked in Leighton Buzzard. Police had also raided what they claimed was a bomb factory, a bathtub filled with what they also claimed was explosives in an apartment in Alexandra Grove, Leeds. So while Police Commissioner Ian Blair quickly backed off the identification of the explosives the police claimed had been found in Luton car and in the bathtub, the story of the London bombs changed to homemade. The bombs which had been left, they would have left certain residue, and that residue was not identified. The previous identification of C4 was buried, so they changed the narrative from the fact that the, they found C4 bombs to that these bombs were homemade, even though the police commissioner and bombs expert at the time said that these were very sophisticated and there's no chance that they were homemade. So the Alexandra Grove apartment with a bomb factory bathtub was found to belong to Magdi Al-Nashar, who was an Egyptian who had just received his PhD in biochemistry from Leeds University and was on the list of Leeds faculty. He was working at the Leeds University that the other young man was trying to get into when he got his test results. He had been forced to leave Britain because of a visa problem one month before, but was trying to return to resume his job at Leeds University. His apartment had been vacant for around a month, and then obviously during that month, you know, they set the, the security services set up this fake bomb factory. So uh, the media headlines claimed that Al Nashar was connected to Al Qaeda. There's no evidence of that, and that fizzled out when he uh, got exonerated and his name was forgotten. While the fingerprints of the accused were identified at their friend Alnishar's apartment, they were not found on any containers of chemicals or the explosives themselves. Now bear in mind that this man had been gone out of the country for a month, so how have they found? They've apparently found the fingerprints of these four men in that apartment, and you know it's it's all like it's it's all coincidental. So police came out with further confirmation of the identity of the accused. They claimed that they had both CCTV footage as well as eyewitness confirmation that the accused caught either the 20 to 8 or the 12 minutes to 8 loot and commuter trains to Kings Cross Station on the morning of July the 7th. People wondered why police refused to show any of the footage of the men in London that day. The reason became apparent when the commuters claimed that those trains had not been running on schedule if they ran at all that morning. So if the men had expected to catch those particular trains, they could not have made it onto the exploding subway cars. So the police refusal to show the CCTV footage became increasingly clear. They couldn't have been looking at CCTV footage because the trains were running late and they clearly didn't get on those trains basically. Now, the number 30 bus 
Um, witnesses claimed that the bus explosion seemed to come from under a seat, possibly from a backpack lying on the ground. The coroner examining the examining sorry not examining that isn't a word examining the bodies from the number 30 bus noted the two bodies were particularly badly damaged either one of them might have been responsible for bringing a bomb onto the bus so people remarked that the terrorists trying to inflict maximum damage would have chosen to bomb the front bottom of the bus not the rear top of the bus the placement didn't make any sense so when Hasib Hussein was named as the bus bomber, witnesses came forward with descriptions and Hussein was either clean shaven or he had stubble, he either had a huge bag or a small bag, he was either wearing a dark suit or a flashy top and he was either fidgeting with his bag or something exploded when he sat down. It became clear that most publicised witness, um, a man called Richard Jones, could not have seen Hussein on the bus at all because everything he said was the complete opposite to what the police were saying. So the bus should have had four CCTV cameras in operation. Police claimed that they had no footage from any of them. So there was no proof that Hussein had been on the bus and there was no indication of what caused the explosion. So because the bus explosion came about 50 minutes after the subway explosion, Hussein becomes separated from Calm, Tamria and Lindsay According to the phone records, Hussein tried repeatedly to call the three of them around 9am after the explosions without success. So with the phone system shut down, he clearly assumed that they were all alive and wondered what was going on. Hussein's actions between 9am and the number 30 explosion at 10.47am should have been picked up by buzz by dozens if not hundreds of CCTV cameras around London. Although many witnesses claimed they saw Hussein at 9am the July 7th pictures of Hussein appear to all have been photoshopped, digitally created or altered. No one knows exactly what happened to Hussein. Hasib Hussein's family and friends found the accusations against him unbelievable. His family insists he will be shown to be innocent when further information comes out. So we don't even know what happened to this man. I mean, was he even on that bus? You know, like, they didn't find his body. They said it was shredded, and uh, they had to run DNA, and it took them a long time to even do that. Did they kill this man in a different way and, you know, just, just cover it all up? So, that's July 7th. Now, remember I mentioned uh, that Tanria and Sadiq Khan, uh, they recorded some tapes for the British Intelligence Services in 2004, a year before the bombings. So on July the 5th, 2006, a year after the bombings, the US broadcaster with a reputation for security links claimed that a tape of Shazad Tanweer was expected to be shown the next day on Al Jazeera. So the next day, July the 6th, 2006, the eve of the anniversary of the bombings, Al Jazeera showed part of a video of Tanweer the shots also taken in 2004 are strikingly similar to the ones released the previous year of Sadiq Khan, where Tamriad is wearing an identical Palestinian-like red scarf around his head, you know, the kefir I mentioned earlier, with an identical background rug and making the same strange stabbing movements with a pen. The video includes edited-in clips of the Al-Qaeda leader, Al-Zahiri, as well as self-proclaimed American member of Al-Qaeda, um, Adam Gadam. While Gadan is also known to the FBI as Abu 
Sahib, Alan Mariki, Abu Sahib. He's, he's got like 16 different names, but he was born Adam Perlman. You know, he's an American dude. There were silly shots meant to appear ominous, such as like dismembered hands on maps and things like that. Like basically, this this tape, I can't. It's, it's available on the internet. You know, you can find it in almost anywhere. The Tamia tape. The tape is, is like both Khan and Tamria tapes were released at like politically opportune moments for the British government. And while the tapes supposedly show Khan and Tamria's support for Al Qaeda and perhaps Palestine, the tapes or origins and releases both implicate British security services at the same time because basically they they're clearly getting told what to do in these tapes and they're clearly doing it. Now I was going to get into the Charles John. Oh, what's his name? John Charles de Menezes inquiry. Uh, he was a Brazilian man who was shot, but I I don't really know. Like I I know that they covered it up and they killed this man and the his family have like no justice and things like that. But I I can't really tie it into the bombings itself. He was just you know an unlucky man in the wrong place, the wrong time, running away from armed police. You know, but there was an inquest on the number thirty bus, and it shows photos which were claimed to be of Hussein's body, separated from other bodies, and under a blue blanket. No one knew who had identified him, who placed him there, or who put the special blanket on him, or if his body was in fact under it. Um, so there was uh, an inquest, and Lisa French, a witness who was seated no further than five seats away, you know, five seats in front of the explosion testified that when she was getting off the bus, police discouraged her from helping a pile of people, indicating that they were already dead. Could these have been the extra bodies? So at the 2010 inquest, it was discovered that another Asian youth had been sitting at the back of the top deck at the time of the explosion. So basically when this woman was getting off the bus, you know, after the explosion, no, she wasn't. She wasn't really hurt. She was still fine. She was saying to the police, "Look, I can help these people. You know, let, let me help." And and they they kind of told her that they were already dead. But she doesn't really think that they were already dead. Now, there's a lot more information on the internet regarding these bombings, but I just I just want to say that like you look at the timing of these bombings and things like that, and you look at the Iraq War just after. 9/11. You look at the Afghan War at the time of this, and you look at all like you you start to piece together all these different things. You got like uh, the grooming gangs, you got like the division, you got even the EDL. Like, how do you know that like Tommy Robinson, for example? How do we know that he wasn't set up to set up the EDL so that you'd create even further division because the fact is right the government is is fucking all of us now if we all got together muslims black whites chinese i don't give a fuck if we all got together and started calling out the government on their bullshit they would be in big big trouble and they wouldn't be able to get away with half of the shit they're getting away with especially now at the moment more than ever but if they can divide us by creating false flag offense and allowing grooming gangs to know to, to do what they do and it's just going to cause further division and if we're divided we can't unite and get together against them so i think that's another reason for them to set up this false flag event so just to recap a lot of the things that don't add up are the fact that the initial inquiry said that the bombs are very sophisticated and they contain c4 
Now, where would these four Muslim students, where would they get C4? Um, and then they changed that up and said that they found this bomb factory in Leeds, knowing that this man had been deported for a month, you know, and he was trying to get back into the country. So they they know that flat's empty. They could have know the security services could have gone and set that up, and then they're saying that the bombs are in fact homemade. And just there's so many different variants that show us that this is clearly a setup. Because why would those men pay for parking that day, travel down to London? Why would they blow themselves up with bombs that have timers on them, you know? Um, I'd just like to apologise to everyone listening, because this has been all over the place, this podcast. But I had to get this information out there so that people research it themselves. And I was itching to do another podcast, because I haven't done one for a long time. So I'm going to wrap it up and leave it where it is. I'm hoping to get a couple of guests on the podcast in the coming weeks. I'm going to make time to do that. I'm just a bit busy with jiu-jitsu, karate, and the gym. And I'm just trying to bury myself into fitness, martial arts, try and get as fit and healthy as possible. Because I truly believe that there's a new world order coming. They're going to jab everyone with these harmful vaccines. and People's health is going to plummet. And I don't want to be one of those people. So thank you guys for listening. This is the 7-7 bombings, Britain's 9-11. Um, and I appreciate that the information isn't the best, but you can go and research all of this yourself. Thank you very much for listening. I'll catch you guys soon.